Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, whether they're eBooks or earrings. Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. We are here on the next episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Today, I've got Brandon Gold with me. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. And I'm going to put your full bio in the show notes here because it's pretty extensive. But just you've been in this for, it looks like, almost 15 years, maybe over 15 years now. Yeah, and about 17 years. <laughs> 17 years. I'm 33 years old, so that gives you kind of like an idea. I've been doing this since I was, I don't know, I've been doing this since I was 18 years old in very small capacity, obviously, nothing crazy, just because yeah. 18, what can you really do? Yeah. And so and you've been director, you've been cultivation, garden state dispensary, COO of Cureleaf, COO of Dank Research and Development. Currently, you're uh, MedVape, uh, Supply LLC, All Things Vape, Gold Syndicate, and B16 Manufacturing. So it's, it's quite an impressive list. And I think what is exciting for me in terms of having this conversation is really kind of understanding that those two areas, the the kind of management operations of grows themselves, like what goes into the complexity into making sure that you've got a successful grow, a productive grow at scale, and then understanding the business side in terms of investment and bringing in funds, management, governance. So I think what, you know, we can kind of talk about both of those things, but you know, I think it's a really interesting conversation to, to see how those things intersect and affect each other. So why don't we start with just the, the grow side? So I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people have heard about grows and, and, you know, what goes into a grow. But I mean, when we talk about grows today, where are we in terms of technology, scale, size, like what goes into a sophisticated grow at this point? It's a multifaceted question. What you have right now is, you know, my family is very heavily involved in finance, right? So 
So you get a lot. It's funny. When I first started growing cannabis, everybody laughed at me and said, what are you doing? Get your head on straight. You know, you need a real job. Get it together. And I said, you know, I, I really like, you know, I'm throwing. So at that point, I was 18 or 19 years old and I'm growing cannabis legally in California. But, you know, uh, we were growing, you know, in my in, in a second in a two two bedroom apartment, turning one of the apartments into a grow, slapping up a compliance sticker that says that we're growing and I'm a patient. And then you kind of had this weird gray area where there were broker dealers and dealing with dispensaries and yada yada. And then there was Prop 215 and SB 420 that came out in California, which allowed you to be a part of a collective and then grow for that collective. So it was kind of the Wild West in the beginning, and and we kind of took advantage of it. Um, but it's cannabis, and and in California is to California is ten years ahead of. Well, it's like California, Oregon, Washington, and Denver are kind of 10 years yeah. ahead now of, of the East Coast, where, where my main bases of operation are, because I think the, yeah. the East Coast is the next place to pop off. But So when I first started, it was throw up some lights, you know, get some good nutrients, and make sure things are good, and, and the plants will be fine. And that's at a small scale. And, and quickly, people started to see some of the things that I was doing and wanted some stuff implemented into their larger scale operations in the San Fernando Valley in California. So I got involved with some bigger grows there, just just looking at what they were doing and seeing how I could make it more efficient or, or better. You know, at that time, that it was early-ish 2000s, and... Uh, you know, people could still use Eagle 20 and there was no pesticides or pesticide requirements. There was no uh, testing requirements. And I mean, you know, I, I think that the industry's come a long way because now that they require all that things, it makes a safer product for the end user. Now let's start to go into like larger scale grow operations. You know, I've done over, I don't even know what the last count was. I think it's 115 or 116 uh, large scale grows. That means 50 lights or more, okay. um, 10,000 square feet about. We started getting into extractions, volatile extractions, solventless extractions, and these OSHA compliant uh, extraction facilities as well. And I had to really, you know, learn by the seat of my pants and speak with some of the people I knew who are now part of my chemistry section and, and uh, you know, construction section, things like that of my new business, which is Gold Syndicate and uh, V16 manufacturing. So large-scale operation compared to a small-scale operation is like, you know, uh, it's like building a robot compared to playing with like something you bought at you know uh, Best Buy, a little you know robot kit or whatever yeah. it is. It's worlds differently. It's the difference between growing you know tomatoes in your garden and comag or commercial agriculture to, you know for, for for large scale production. I mean, in terms of the sources of knowledge, I mean, how how much did you kind of learn or borrow or um, uh, gain from from agriculture production versus some of these other industries? I mean, where, where were your source of knowledge or what contributed to kind of the, the science and capability? I mean, I'm totally 100% self-taught. Yeah. They, they pressured me to get, you know, some of the operations I was in pressured me to get a horticultural license, not a license, but like a certificate. Yep. And that's what they do with a lot of their growers. But essentially what happens is is it's like we're at the point of prohibition with alcohol right before alcohol. And I hate to use that reference because I think cannabis is a medicine, not yeah. an intoxicant. Um, but, but it's similar. So you have, you know, these people that kind of know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have you have people that are, are great, amazing grow talent. You have great, amazing extraction talent. 
And and then you have, you know, all this money going into a license and a facility and all these different things, especially here on the East Coast. Yeah. And then it becomes a business and it becomes, you know, you got to have, you know, your standard operating procedures. You have to have your, your integrated pest management or IPMs, as the industry calls them, in place. You're reporting to, you know, let's see, like in Jersey, it's the Department of Health. In Connecticut, it's the Department of Consumer Protection. Yep. They audit you. Some are more like your your friends and they believe in the answer. And some of them are more like cops and they really don't believe in it. You know, to give an example, when we were in Jersey, our point of contact at the DOH was an ex uh, state police trooper who absolutely did not believe in cannabis, and his goal mm. was to get us as many citations as he possibly could in his own kind of rogue cop mentality. When we're bringing in all this tax money and we're doing all this good for people, I mean, when I was out in California, I really thought medical cannabis was a way for people to get their medical cannabis card and consume cannabis legally because they liked it, and that's. Mm. In my opinion, that's all a valid excuse you need for med- for, to use cannabis. Yeah. I think the body mobilizes it in a certain way and does all these different things. But kind of to reel myself back in, as cannabis ops scale, you have to really, really, really have somebody at boots on the ground that understands two things, which is what I do and where I, where I sell, essentially. You have to have somebody who knows how these cannabis operations run and how they're supposed to run. And you should be able to tour a room and see if there's any sort of infection or there's any sort of bacterials or there's any sort of uh, anything that's wrong, any, down to, you know, if there's a nitrogen deficiency or if there's a calcium deficiency. You need, you need to have somebody at the board level that understands that and has 10 years behind them. Inversely, you have to have somebody that can communicate with a board of cutthroat private equity people. Yeah. So it's kind of like there's only a couple of us in the country that can do that level of, you know, wearing two hats, I guess you could say. But the problems lie how companies are structured. Yeah. That's the biggest problem right now. And do you find, I mean, I, I, I'm curious if this is, when this becomes a problem, is it in the setup? Is it in the management, or is it in the kind of the the crisis? Like when things when things are not going as planned, like how do you resolve or, or all, all of those? All, all of those. All. I mean, I'm so, curious. We we you know in in tech, I come out of the tech space, and there were, there's there's always been kind of a similar thing, which is, is is a little bit of the translator or the person that can understand the intricacies of the software and the systems and the integration that needs to happen. And the business folks or the the kind of executive folks in terms of, you know, trying to achieve some kind of business strategy, business goal. And and oftentimes what we found is when things aren't going right, it's because the executive side is is sort of muddling in the technical side, trying to actually manage the tech piece. And that's often when things go wrong. It sounds like kind of a similar. So let's talk. Let's talk about Agro that I was involved in, in let's say, the last five years, and I'm bound by mutual non-disparagement and yep. a bunch of other things. Um, but So we're not going to name names. But a girl that I've been involved with, you know, I was pretty heavily involved with on the East Coast. What you had was you had a large group of board members who were representing, each one of those people were point people representing private equity money. Yep. And it was for an enormous raise that was done years ago to get the license. So licensing for these facilities can be a hundred, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And that's just to apply. Then there's caveats. You have to have your location where you were going to grow the cannabis and produce the cannabis in place 
prior to the licensing process. So, you know, what you have is you have a board coming in. They're like, all right, we're we're ready and willing to spend millions of dollars. And on on the first, you know, kind of seed, not not, not the seed round, but the first seeding of the company is going to be the licensing and the regulatory and making sure we get our licenses. Let's say all that goes great and you get all your licenses and you're ready to go, right? Now you're going to need a capital investment of about six to twelve, six to ten million dollars to get that huge cannabis facility up and running and to do it right. So what will happen is, is the people who win the licenses, at least as far as I've seen in certain states, and, and I'm hoping things are going to change in Mass and in Jersey if things get really crazy. But the people that win the licenses, they have written those applications, and I'm guilty of writing some of those applications, where you're putting in best practice. So, you know, a question on an application might read, and it's very vague, you know, it might read something along the lines of, you know, how will Nuco, Nucanico X deal with an outbreak of powdery mildew in its growth? And then it has an A, B, and C section on what pesticides you're going to use and da 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 And uh, it used to be a lot easier. Like if you look at ComAg for USDA organics, mm-hmm cannabis industry people don't have access to even that because it's been ruled out that that's not okay to use when it's fine to use and i'm not and i am not a proponent for pesticides when i see pesticides i mean garlic oil and rosemary oil but there were some grows that i worked at where if you were gonna just for instance spray water on the plants if you're using it in the capacity as a pesticide it's a pesticide so it doesn't matter what it is. If, yeah. So they it's dead, application. It's not. Yeah. They deadlock you in, which is not a good thing. Huh. So 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 you know. So the biggest thing I could say regarding you know the money side of it and the op side of it is is that it's got a failure rate of something like eighty five to ninety percent because you have private equity guys or, or hedge fund guys or people that are independently wealthy investing in these huge cannabis corporations and then they're bringing in they're bringing in guys that are that are growers that they know of or something like that, but there's no, there's no um, background or anything like that. And they cut the mustard for a little bit. And then when a problem happens, then they all freak out and they'll go to some big conglomerate, not going to name names again, but there's about five or six of them in the United States, a big cannabis conglomerate and their websites look really pretty and attractive to private equity people. And they're normally run by criminals at the top, top end, uh, you know, um, but they're, but they're these big conglomerates and they come in and they look at your grow and they say, no, even if it's right, I've been on the finance side of things and they said, oh, we're, we're having a second opinion come in alongside with you where I'll go and I'll give them my rundown on what's wrong with it or what needs to be done. They'll come in and give us a completely separate one and then they'll lock them into service contracts and it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like you know, teaching a child that they can just pay their way out of it. And then, but what's really happening is, is that company's locking them into some sort of insane contract for a service agreement. And it's kind of good. So they, they come in and actually manage the grow then. I mean, that, that's, that's the kind of conflict of interest is they're going to come in and tell you. I have no idea what they're doing. I've always represented the point that I've always represented the idea that the person who built the grow or the, or the person who was there from, from when it was a concrete slab and, 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 you know, four, four walls and a ceiling Mm-hmm. Whoever was there during that build out is the only one that actually really knows the intricacies of what's going on because there is a ton of science in the building of a of a cannabis production facility. In the 90s mm-hmm. it was very simple. Lights, some tables, yeah. some nutrients, you feed them, it's done, you deal with the 
effects of what's going on. The, into the 2000s, you're dealing with rooms that are clean with, with you know, drainage and, and, you know, some tables and yada, yada. Now we're at the point in technology where, you know, the grow rooms that I build and design that I have, you know, ready to go essentially out for my jump teams who, who know how to build them, mm-hmm. they're hermetically sealed. I mean, down to, you know, positive and negative air pressure in the room using the CUVB lighting for pest management control, which is totally dangerous for people to be in. So my grows go from everything from your outdoor grow to your quite literally mechanical or or totally autonomous or or semi-autonomous grows where somebody needs to go in once a week, take care of the plants, diagnose any sort of toxicities or, 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 or deficiencies, if there's any pests or bugs, which there shouldn't be because it's totally yeah, you know, hermetically sealed. sealed. Yeah. And then they're modular as well. So if you have an infection, you can dump that one room and you still haven't lost. You might get a week behind, but you're not going to get three months behind. Yeah. So you're actually containing containing the issues through structure and through process. That's 100%. The only way to succeed is to... So what you have is going back to some of the licensing procedures and big grows coming on board is they'll make a facility look... If So if they put in their application, we will have a, you know, a, mm. a, a lab-grade containment chamber between the locker rooms and the grow area. You know, in the locker rooms, they're going to put on Tyvek suits. They're going to go and they're going to go yeah. into the grow area. They're going to get they're going to get sprayed down by a mist. They're going to get UVC, UVB, or whatever it is with the suits on, eyes closed, step into some sort of a solution like a water bath, and then be able to go into the grow. What you have is is companies building something that looks like that, but it yeah. it isn't actually that. It's smoke and mirrors, and then. Even more so, they'll go into the grows. I mean, I've gone into grows that look like a multi-million dollar grow. They don't have drains in the floor. So you're, so you're making a ton of work for the growers on the ground to be able to, to have to empty out these tables and do these different things with nutrients when it can all be done through plumbing and autonomous you know, flow systems like ebb and flow or whatever it is. Yeah. They make nutrient dosing systems now. They make full, you know, nutrition and pest management control systems now. And those run in the hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollar range. And when you have a when you're when you're specking out a grow, what I've found in the last six months is that we'll spec out a grow and we'll be contending with another grow operation or another another cannabis consulting company. My grows are gonna be more expensive. I don't want to be involved with anybody that doesn't want to spend the money to do it right first yeah. time so yeah. so you know i i have a bunch of other businesses that, I, that i'm involved in ancillary to cannabis manufacturing you know for the vaporization industry which i think is the best way to make cannabinoids bioavailable mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff i mean we could like i said i think on our on our first call we could spend you know three hours talking about cannabis I mean, I'd be curious to talk a little bit more about the now the funding side of it. So, so I, I get that, that from a technical point of view, we now have you know kind of state of the art grow facilities, which are really sound like clean rooms for for producing you know silicon chips. You know where it, it's is incredibly isolated or incredibly controlled environments. You know, at minimal human interaction to avoid human error as possible. But they're expensive. I mean, we're talking you know serious money that needs to get put down to be able to fund not all the licensing, but the construction and the management of this stuff. So how, how do you, from an organizational entity finance structure, actually make this stuff work now to pull that money together? These questions are literally things that I deal with every day. So it's pretty interesting. So there's three different kind of 
caveats where, where, where I come in. So there's the grows that have done it wrong or cheaply in the beginning and they need, and they need to fix. And that requires a CapEx investment. And that's not something that the board is happy to hear about. And quite literally, they have to wait for their money to grow on cannabis, which is not something that private equity people are used to. They're used to knowing, you know, exact top line metrics. They're used to exact numbers and, and that don't change or change within just a varying degree. Whereas in growing, you know, if it's summertime in Massachusetts and you don't have your rooms perfect, you're going to see a heat spike or a humidity spike. And you're, you're going to one person walks in with one spore on them and you can contaminate an entire growth. So, yeah, it's treated like a like a total clean room. So where, where private equity money comes in is, is is where it's interesting and more so than anything. Now, your question was, how does it integrate with the development with the grows or how does it actually look like when it's up and running? Because there's two different. Uh, I, I'd be interested in both. OK, so, you know, you. For example, and listen, I don't consider myself the best in the industry. I consider myself to have one of the one of the best aesthetics in the industry. So there's okay. people that can come in, they can offer you a solution, and it's going to work, and you're going to make money. But at some point, you're going to run into a problem, and they're going to say, "Oh, it's you know climate related, or it's going to be you know somebody brought in a bug and mm-hmm. or like a spider mite or something like." June, July, August are spider mite seasons. You know, if you walk by a hedge outside, most likely there's spider mites in it. If you get it on your sleeve and then you go into there, and like I said, it's it's tough yeah. to get uh, to get a facility up and running. I mean, one of the facilities that I've built, you know, has essentially three traps before the growers can go into the into the grow room. There's the there, and it's access controlled. You go in, you have to shower when you go in. Then from that shower, you're going to take a towel that was sanitized by us and, you know, male and female shower rooms. And then you're going to go into male and female locker rooms, which have been sanitized and have UVB, UVC lighting in them. That's making sure that everything that's on all the walls are completely destroyed. They're sanitized every three days with vital oxide, which is a surgery grade room cleaner, things like that. And, I'm, and this is some details, but this, if people are yeah. listening to this and they don't know what I'm talking about, they need to go back and, and, and redo their <laughs> SOPs. Yeah. And only then, once you're wearing our uniform that's been cleaned on site and we know that yeah. it's clean, are you allowed anywhere near into the production side of the facility? And that's for kitchen, that's for extraction, that's for grow, wherever it is. And then on a caveat, if you're breeding, if you're doing genetics, yeah, that has to be a separate facility on site that they're never allowed to come into the grow until they're not breeding anymore because the last thing you want is a male sport is you want male contaminants in yeah. a in an all-female room you lose the entire harvest yeah so now let's talk yeah, about the money simple. side of it so it's extremely easy to get private equity excited about large-scale cannabis operations keeping them interested and when all the new when jeff sessions is releasing these these news articles that he's going to shut down cannabis facilities when he's scheduled cbd when so you see what you have is a lot of people with cold feet right now so they're really into it they want to be involved and we're talking we're not talking little raises we're talking five to ten million dollar raises you know we're doing a raise for massachusetts right now uh, it's a $10 million raise, and uh, we have letters of intent for six out of the 10. And uh, once we get that 10, we can we can build the facility out and do what we need. But then there's staged investment after that. These are big investments yeah. that people need to understand. It's not. I get approached by people that say, I have $250,000. I want to invest in cannabis. And I said, 
<laughs> Go find ten friends. Our, <laughs> our lowest investor, our lowest investment is is a million dollars. I go million dollars. It's like yeah, well, we want to mitigate the amount. I mean, it's really, it's really, it's, it's like real estate investment. I mean, you're you're talking about you know serious construction and serious serious development to really get these things up and running. Yeah. So here's where the problem happens. You get the money, right? Let's say you get the ten million. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Let's see that. Let's say that ten million is. Let's say the ten million is one million dollars for each representative of raising that million dollars, and you have ten board members or whatever it is, eleven, twelve board members, whatever it is. You have them arguing about. You know, the grower comes in and says, "We have a problem with this. We need to make sure we get one of our dehumidifiers goes down." This is just like yep. ops every day. One of our dehumidifiers, we have to air in a dehumidifier tomorrow. What's that going to the board? What, what's that going to cost? All right, well, the dehumidifier, one of them went down. It's 5000 We should get a second one in case this happens again. That's 10000 And to air it in overnight is another 2500 because they weigh about 1,000 pounds. So then they're talking about a 17, you know, 17.5, uh, I keep talking millions, uh, $17,500 for, for, for something that's needed to keep that grow. And they're debating... The, the, now I'm talking about the private equity people sitting yeah. on the board are debating whether or not that needs to happen. And the growers telling them, if you don't do this, we're going to lose the crop. And then they sit and they wait and five days later, okay, let's do it. Well, five days have now gone by. The plants have been yeah. stressed. You bring in that thing, you're going to have something wrong. And then they're like, well, what happened? We got you what you needed. Well, it's not, you didn't, you didn't get it to me the next day. You got it to me five days later. Plants have already suffered. There's irreparable damage. And little things like 5% humidity up and down can cause mm, big yeah. problems. Little things like temperature up and down, five, 5 degrees, can cause huge problems, even if it's for a day. So, And there's no shutting it down. Once you turn the machine on, it has to go until harvest. Yeah. Yeah, you're on a train at that point. So, yeah, you, you have a lot of distrust in private equity. I mean, I can't tell you how many private equity hedge fund groups, things like that, that I've dealt with that are really interested and, and, and actually get on the ground. And then they do, they implode themselves because they don't understand the capital investment that they need to make as the growth keeps going. So what I offer with Gold Syndicate is a very clear picture based on the lowest numbers possible to investors. And I say, listen, all my numbers are calculated on worst day doomsday scenarios. So short of losing the entire harvest, you know, yields, if I can do three pounds of light or two and a half pounds of light, I cut that in half. And that's my yield projection on the performer. So what you have is a lot of companies out there that are representing themselves. I just looked at a deck from a company that's bloating them by like 300%, bloating all the returns. And then they're not taking into account what's going to extraction because the big business these days is an extraction. Yeah. Granted, the market nationally is still about 40% flour. But it's surpassed by your pens, your cartridges, your 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 concentrates for dabbing, your mm-hmm. your sublinguals, your topicals, things like that. All been, and I only project that it's going to go, it's going to go in that direction even more. So maybe five years from now, it's going to be twenty percent flour, eighty percent extract. Yeah. So, so what happens in the extractable? So you said that the, the problem is, is they haven't even accounted for the extractable. Well, I mean, that's just in some cases. I mean, like for example, like. Let's say a grow, let's just use round numbers. Let's say a grow on the harvest is going to do 100 pounds, which is not a lot. Let's say it's strain specific and you're going to do 25 pounds of that to, you know, let's say it's a a Girl Scout cookie strain. You're going to do 25 pounds. That's going to be allocated for extraction nug run. So that's what we call it for live resin, which is the highest quality, highest possible 
cannabinoid content you can do. Your yields on that are going to be extremely low. But what they're doing is they're not, or let's say it's a lot, what a lot of people do is they do the trim. So in states like New York, where, mm-hmm. and things might have changed, but the last I checked, they're only doing extractables, no flour. Yeah. Where they're, what they're probably doing is distillate, which is a, it, it's, it's distillation of cannabinoids. But there's a, there's a loss factor. So you might only get on, on flour to crude oil, you'll get like a 50% yield. Then on that 50% yield, you're going to yield another 30 or 40%, you know, if you're lucky. on. Got it. So it's, and then it's how many times you're washing that distillate to get it as clear as possible. You know, there's some companies out west that are doing six wash clear distillate. It's literally as clear as water, and it's the most purest form of, of THC you could possibly get. Those are what's going in the pens. That's what's going in for food. You know, there's all different methods of extraction. Volatile, meaning they're using they're using solvents like butane, yeah. hexane, pentane, which are scary words. But if you're if you're running a proper lab, all of that is purged out completely, and it's yeah. it's used to it's it's a way better purely extraction. Yeah. And if you go and you yeah. look at any extracting extractions at pharma, they're doing way crazier things than <laughs> using solvents. So. The states that are allowing volatile extractions are the states that are on track to doing it correct, like California, like Colorado. It's very important in the structure. You know, in, in states like New Jersey, to get a lab up and running, it has to be OSHA compliant. It has to, it's a huge capital investment. In states like CT, you have to. it has to be run through no solventless, so like a water CO2 extractor, which is a hundred dollars to $200,000 machine. And then you can use ethanol in the winterization process and things like that. We're getting a little too scientific, but... No, but they contra- the point is, is that they contradict themselves. So the laws contradict what is actually uh, implemented. And that's because of a very big topic that not a lot of people know about, which is the states are using your applications. So they'll release a guidance and they'll say, mm-hmm. these are our guidances for the application process of state X, right? People will then, in droves apply and use best practices to which they'll mostly most of the time get some sort of a doctorate in horticulture or a phd or whatever it is to write those and they'll win but then they're going to be held to those best practices and that's where it becomes a big problem for production for getting medicine Mm -hmm. to the people i mean i can't tell you how many facilities failed microbial on 0.001 when the apple that you're biting into that says USDA organic, GMO free, yada, 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 you think it's the best thing in the world you're putting into your body. If that went to the same standard, which is a pharma standard for the cannabis, yeah. you wouldn't see apples anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole different set of. Yeah. So pesticides need yeah. to need to be reevaluated yeah. in some states. It needs to be used. They're using it in, in comag and in, in organic comag, everything. So you can't hold a botanical product to a pharma standard from that thing. And that's where a lot of states are failing. And I think you're seeing a lot of the laws loosen up a little bit. Yeah. With private equity money, the biggest problem, and I'll, I'll end this, this topic on this. Once the operation is greenlit, built and ready to go, there's no seat at the board for ops. So any, and that's how it's been for the future. They're making all these business decisions that are affecting ops on the day-to-day ground floor. And they don't know that then ops doesn't know what's going on. So they're continuing, they're doing their regimens, they're doing what they have to do. And then some suit will come in that says that they're a director of cultivation or whatever it is. And they'll say, oh, well, we're going to change it up. and We're going to do this. Oh, but we're mid-grow. Why would we do that mid-grow? Doesn't matter. It's what the board wants. We're doing it. And then the board yells at them when 
when the, yeah. the crop isn't 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 successful. So it's a two-edged sword. Money is a double-edged sword. Money in. So I will not involve myself in any grow operation, either consulting or actual implementation at a grow facility, unless my team, an extractor, a grower, myself, and one other, have board seats on, and we can make decisions where we can, and we have final veto power over everything. So unless it's spending money, if it's a decision on the ground floor, like what nutrient are we going to use or what CO2 level are we going to put in the rooms and, and all that, that's the ops team side. And the board of directors and private equity money that is, that is involved, that, that has maybe read some things on YouTube or, <laughs> or, or read some High Times articles, how to top yeah. tips on how to grow, you're not a, you're not a cannabis grower. You're, you're the money. Yeah. I know it's cool. I know it's cannabis and Da, 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 but you cannot by any means. <laughs> and it makes sense. I mean, I think that's, you know, very similar to you know anything that's kind of heavy R&D research and development kind of things where you really need to separate out sort of the science from the management and the uh, and those things and making sure that you've got the right people making those decisions because it is it's, the fact is it's complicated it takes a lot of experience it takes a lot of knowledge and understanding to be able to make those decisions and if you're if you're just a investor board member private equity person it's it's going to be tough for you to really make those make those well so so tell me a little bit about more about what you're doing um, in terms of putting together the funds that you're putting together how are you structuring them we're kind of coming to the end here on time, but if, you know, if people had more questions or interested in talking to you more about it or getting involved, how would they, how would they reach you and connect with you? Sure. I mean, I mean, obviously if you want to touch base on this, there's so much that I can talk on and we, we barely scratched the surface, but my cannabis venture is, is gold syndicate. And what I'm doing is at this point, I am investing all of my time into developing these SO, these new set of SOPs, these new set of IPMs, where and structuring teams pretty much four teams across the country, one on the East Coast, one in the middle, and two on the West Coast, that can jump and go anywhere within a day or two to be able to either fix a cannabis problem or to be able to plan to implement a cannabis facility. And then what I call embedding, which is, you know, if the team wants to have it so that the team I put in place comes online and they want to keep them as kind of like your head grower, your head of extraction, your your facilities manager, things like that. Fine, you can keep my team, but now I have points in your company. I have a seat on the board and I'm going to and any money that I bring to the to the so that's the upside. If if I'm bringing money and my private equity side, so I represent about 50 to 75 million in in private equity money that people that want to be in cannabis, but they're not sure where they want to be. If now's the right time, what do I get involved in? And right now, to be honest with you, Bruce, I'm steering most of them towards ancillary to cannabis. So all the products that are coming out, whether it be a nutrient company, whether it be a soil company, whether it be a dab rig company, whether it be a vaporization company, whatever it is that's ancillary to cannabis where regulations don't apply, that's the key. So for now. And then when when states start to release guidances again, like Mass is a big state that's going to go off. And so is New Jersey, apparently. So Mass is the one that I'm ultra focused on because I like the way their rec is. I mean, their med is set up. I like mm-hmm. the way their rec set up. Now we're waiting on guidances to see how the rec and facilities yeah. need to get built. Haven't been released yet. When they get released is when we'll, we'll mobilize to do the application and get things funded. And we'll be doing a vertically integrated there, yeah. which is essentially a grandfathered license from, from somebody. And we're going to partner with them. And we're going to make sure we get 
you know, a facility up and running that returns to our investors very fast, but keeps mm-hmm. their involvement in the op side of the business to a, a minimum. It's very important. Yeah. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for failure because they're going to get involved. Everything's going to get deadlocked. Yeah. And if you have cannabis people who are doing their job and that know what they're doing, which is not the case in a lot of these big grows, these are basement growers that are coming into a comag setting and they have known nothing about you know, logging analytical data or using yeah. a back-end system or things like that. It's all failure from there on. You need to have educated medical can, rec can teams that know what they're doing. Otherwise, don't do it. So, you know, my team's Gold Syndicate. If you haven't heard about us, we're doing our job correctly. Yeah, exactly. We, we're, we're going for the high-end boutique. It's We don't have a website. We don't have a LinkedIn. We don't have anything. And that's because let the other people that don't know what they're doing fail and weed themselves out. And yeah. when we're ready, we'll launch our name. But we have enough business word of mouth via Wall Street and the industry that we don't yeah. we can be ghosts. We don't need to be. And that's not for any sort of legal reasons or anything. We're operating 100 percent above the board. It's just that unless you can kind of get in touch with people that can put you in touch with the right people, you shouldn't be in cannabis in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a, and I think that's, a filter. I think that's a good you, know, you shouldn't be in cannabis in the first place. Right. There is the cut, man. That's yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't be there if you, if you if you don't know what you're doing. Brendan, this was great. Uh, I really appreciate the time. I appreciate the conversation. I, you know, I like you said, there's probably another another six hours of content we did go through. Thank you. Hey, whatever you need, buddy. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.